1: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in B.C. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Let's talk about the fallout to last week's story. The two B.C. companies here who said they had received a license from Health Canada to manufacture and sell cocaine. You got to be kidding me. What a story this was here. You had one company here, Adistra Labs, who talked about their efforts to commercialize the sale of cocaine. They'd got the thumbs up and the green light from Health Canada to do it. Their stock price went up dramatically after they made that announcement another company in victoria claiming the same thing both these companies now walking back these claims now have a listen to the premier here this is david eby after the news that these bc companies said they're ready to go into the cocaine business have a listen
0: i was astonished uh, by this announcement uh... i understand uh... that this company is indicating that health canada has given them
1: some kind of authorization Uh, it is not part of our provincial plan okay well both the companies now saying health canada now saying finally after some silence from them that these companies had received a limited license here to deal in cocaine with other licensed officials not for sale to the general public let's discuss this all now with my guest eleanor sturko liberal mla surrey south very pleased to welcome eleanor back to the show eleanor thank you for coming on today
2: Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay. It's interesting to take a look at this story and the fallout of it last week because some people have said, well, this sparks another conversation about safe supply of drugs. If people are dying from overdoses of fentanyl, maybe laced into street cocaine, you know, maybe, maybe there should be companies selling so called safe cocaine. What do you think about this whole, this whole thing as it unfolded last week?
2: It was really bizarre and concerning, uh, particularly to see, you know, the level at which it appears that both the federal and provincial government have no clue what's, you know, unfolding here in B.C., especially since we're just at the very beginning of, you know, a first of its kind pilot project with decriminalization for B.C. And the fact is that under this NDP government, multiple publicly traded companies are now positioning themselves and their businesses to profit off the suffering of people in our addictions crisis. um, I'm, I'm happy to see that we're having this conversation. But the fact of the matter, really, to me, and the point of bringing this forward is that we just simply don't have enough clarity. And, and you know, this government really needs to set out its intentions with safe supply.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One of the other things that occurred to me and, and a lot of research has been warning about this. Be careful about follow the money on this stuff. You you start talking about the commercialization of cocaine like we saw last week. Well, hang on a sec. Haven't we learned our lesson here from the commercialization of opioid medicines like Oxycontin? I mean, didn't that, didn't that largely get us into this crisis to a degree in the first place? Like commercialization of these drugs, opioids?
2: Well, it absolutely did. So you look back at what happened in the States and Canada with Purdue Pharma and how profit over the wellness of people really got us into largely the crisis that we find ourselves in now. And, you know, um, this is getting into the weeds a bit, but the Stanford Lancet report really recommends not commercializing, um, you know, addictive substances, because we put ourselves in that situation again where you know, very quickly we could see our province be in a position where we're spending more money and more investment from uh, publicly traded companies to keep people in addictions for profit more than what we see this government investing in solutions and opportunities for people to actually be well.
1: Yeah. The other thing that's that I think is troubling about the safe supply issue is we're already seeing evidence of if people get access to safe supply like pharmaceutical-grade lab-tested drugs to get them so they don't have to take poisonous street drugs, that sometimes this so-called safe supply will end up on a kind of a black market, maybe sold for other drugs, so that people can get the fentanyl that they want. I mean, once again, last week on Vancouver Island, we saw a terrific story of Czech TV news about guys were finding labels of hydromorphone on the streets, evidence that maybe people are selling or trafficking in the safe supply of drugs. Is that a concern for you?
2: Well, we already know that that is happening here in BC. Um, it's not a what if it's, it's not a hypothetical, but we've actually heard from people with lived experiences, people who ha- are in recovery themselves and have said that this is exactly what they did, that they received, yeah. um, you know, diluted, and that wasn't giving them the high that they wanted the feeling that they were seeking and so they they sold it or traded it so that they could obtain the street drugs that they wanted and you know it's extremely concerning because we don't want to be creating a situation where we're letting publicly supplied addictive drugs get into you know other people's hands the reason that a lot of these pilots for um, harm reduction where involving you know publicly supplied addictive drugs to people was because they these individuals who are part of these programs are at a very high risk for overdose and the intent of giving them these these drugs was to help save their lives, but right. really not meeting the mark of our intentions if they're simply going to be then diverted to other people.
1: Yeah, right, right. Speaking to liberal MLA Eleanor Stirco, let's talk a little bit about decriminalization, which is now the law of the land here in British Columbia, possession of small amounts of drugs, cocaine, heroin. It, it's basically legal now to have uh, possess small amounts of these drugs. You will not be charged criminally. And I thought it was an interesting exchange in the legislature last week, Eleanor, on this point. And I want to play this clip here for you. So this is the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth, here, responding to Liberal Party questions here on the whole co- cocaine issue that erupted last week. And you'll hear him talk here about decriminalization. Let's have a listen here.
3: As the, uh, the member knows, both sides of the House have supported uh, decriminalization. turn. No. Ter- yeah you have um, you can change your position if you're changing your if if, you're, if, Shh, if
4: members you're cha- let's not have
3: growth if, if you're changing your position then um, you know I think it would be a, a, an important thing to, uh, to announce
1: okay so you heard you heard the Solicitor General there the NDP from the NDP government say well we all support decriminalization here and then we heard NDP liberal leader Kevin Falcon say hang on no 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 and then Falcon got up and said this let's have a listen to the liberal leader here Thank you, Mr. Speaker. So let's be really clear. The NDP's plunge headlong into decriminalization without the proper guardrails that even the federal government insisted should be in place is absolutely not something that we're going to support on this side of the House. Okay, so let's see if we can clarify this. So, what is the liberal position here on this, Eleanor? You know, you're saying that you don't support decriminalization of possession of these drugs now?
2: No, we do, (laughs) which is, I don't want to be convoluted, so let me clarify. We do, and we agreed um, to a lot of um, things that we believe will reduce stigma and reduce harm and hopefully save lives. And those things are um, noted in the Select Standing Committee uh, health report um, that came out last fall. But when decriminalization was um, entered into an agreement with the federal government, there were several caveats put in place. Um, you know, better access to healthcare was a requirement, making sure that there were metrics that would be in place um, so that we could have proper measures to determine what the outcomes were being and that people would know what the um, actual outcome that we're seeking to, to have is. Uh, you know, that along with education, public consultation, and there were many other uh, caveats put in place, none of which we believe that the NDP have uh, actually met so while, yes, we have definitely you know agreed with the principle of decriminalization because we too want to reduce stigma and encourage people to come forward um, when they have a problem so that they can receive help, we also believe that um, we have to go through and actually do the work that's required to make sure that, as Kevin says, that the guardrails are in place because they're designed for the protection of the public. And, you know, I find it actually offensive when this government time and time again tries to portray that we're actually against things like harm reduction and decriminalization when we ask questions. Our job as the official opposition is to ask questions, to hold them accountable for the agreement that they made with the federal government, because we owe it to the public to ensure that in a once of its kind, first time in Canada decriminalization is done properly and that the work is done because we're not just talking about, you know, introducing a new traffic law. This is actually a law that has the potential to harm people um, and have unintended consequences that when we're talking about deadly drugs could actually cost people in British Columbia their lives.
1: So do so, you do you therefore think that the government has has just plunged into this like too quickly? Like they've brought in decriminalization too quickly without making sure all the other safeguards there are there for you. Like like you said, public education, you know, access to treatment and recovery and, and detox, which is not there absolutely. sufficiently. Yeah.
2: A hundred percent. And you know what, the sad part is, is it's not like they decided a the day before and then entered into decriminalization. This is something that we've known that has been coming and agreed to for more than a year before it was implemented. And, you know, they had been advocating for this type of uh, agreement with the government since really they formed government. So we're talking about an opportunity to have set the groundwork for decriminalization over five years. And so there is no excuse in my mind. Um, And, you know, including on, on these new licenses that businesses are getting. And as we see people for profit trying to you know, gain for themselves and for their shareholders here in BC by, yeah. by pivoting to try to be ready for the distribution of illicit drugs. So okay. I, I really think it's a failure.
1: Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it.
2: Always a pleasure, Mike. Thank you.
0: Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows.
1: okay let's talk about electric unicycles now and these are becoming more and more popular you see lots of them zooming around town got a couple of devoted electric unicycle riders on the line gabriel quok is a student at emily carr university gabriel thanks a lot for coming on today hello hi right, thanks for doing this also on the line is travers is a uh, professor at simon fraser university dr travers thanks for coming on
4: uh it's my pleasure
1: Okay, appreciate both of you being here, Gabriel. Let me go to you first. How long have you been riding your electric unicycle around Vancouver? Uh, I just hit ten months now. Ten months. How's it going for you? Do you enjoy it? Oh, I I love it. It's been going great. How do? You, what do you like about it?
5: I like the uh, the freedom of riding, since um, it's just controlled by the lean of your body. It kind of just feels like an extension, not not a vehicle that you're on. Yeah. Extension of the body. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and when I see them zooming around, like, the first thing I thought was, how do you stop these things? Like, they've got brakes, right? Um,
5: So it doesn't have conventional brakes like a bicycle, but um, it brakes by using the motor, and it's just as effective as braking on a bicycle. You just lean back really
1: hard. Okay, and do you ever get into any kind of disputes with motorists or pedestrians who don't like you zooming around on your electric unicycle?
5: Uh, nope, I've never had any negative reactions or anybody, like, screaming at me on the on the road or anything. Okay. I guess, like the most negative reaction I've ever had was somebody along a bike path just glaring at me and shaking her head, but that's oh. about it. Most people are either curious or interested and, like, think it's really cool.
1: Yeah, tell me about the ticket you got. You did have a little run-in with police, right? What happened?
5: Yeah, I sure did. So I was just riding up Main Street, and I heard the sirens behind me, and I got pulled over by a cop in an undercover black SUV. Whoa. Um, and oh, man. This is, and um, just to note that I've been riding for nine months at that point, over 2,000 kilometers, and I've never had a negative interaction with a police officer. So this is, of course, shocking to me that I'm getting pulled over. And he talked about how electric unicycles are technically illegal, which they are, but all the other cops that I've interacted with or have been talked to by other members of the UC community consider
1: it chill. Mm, yeah, fun. because, because there, is a, there is a pilot project in place in Vancouver for electric scooters. So if you have one of those electric kick ups, uh, kick scooters, you can ride those in a bike lane. On a side but yeah. but the but the electric unicycle is still technically illegal, right?
5: yeah, I suppose there's some line of boundary there that I was not aware of at the
1: time being pulled over, yeah, so you got a ticket for five hundred and ninety eight dollars that's a lot I sure did, yeah, so what what was that for? You're breaking the motor vehicle act or something, like what was it technically you're accused of doing? On the ticket, it says no insurance, which is strange
5: because some of us who actually also got the ticket went to ICBC, and you can't get insurance on an electric unicycle. Right. So we're finding that kind of weird, that we're given
1: tickets for something you can't get. Okay, and you're intending to fight the ticket, right? Yeah. All right. Okay, where are you at in that now? Have Have you disputed it? I haven't sent in my dispute form, but I have finished writing the letter. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to find it. Well, I'm going to follow, check in with you, Gabriel, and see what happens with that. Let's talk to Travers now. Dr. Travers is a professor at Simon Fraser University. Travers, tell me about your electric unicycle.
4: Um, I've been riding an electric unicycle for four years, and I probably put, um, you know, twenty five to 30,000 kilometers on it. Wow. Yeah. And part of that was also, as part of my research on uh, app-based delivery, I delivered, uh, I've delivered 2,100 orders on Uber Eats using my electric unicycle. I would have to say that um my electric unicycle has replaced 80% of my car trips and it's given me a mobility that I otherwise lack because I have a knee injury that prevents me from even riding an e-bike. So the electric unicycle it actually makes me stronger but it's it's just an amazing feeling to be able to ride.
1: Huh. Okay, what have you ever received a ticket like Gabriel got from police?
4: Never. I've never had a single negative interaction with yeah. a police officer or a security guard. You know, and one of the things I want to emphasize, Mike, is if yeah. someone is riding recklessly and dangerously, I'm all for ticketing them. You know, like I right. I am just as invested uh, as, you know, the average person in feeling that pedestrians and cyclists um, and other electric micro mobility riders can do so safely. Yeah. And electric unicycle riders... You know, the vast majority of us want to be part of that.
1: Right. Even though they're technically illegal, right? Like when you're riding around town on your electric unicycle, you're breaking the law, correct?
4: Well, you know, it's kind of a a, a gray area about the law because you know, the Motor Vehicle Act was made before these kinds of vehicles were even available. But we also live in a transportation planning and policy landscape whereby automobiles are privileged and Pedestrians, cyclists, electric micro mobility users are left with you know tiny bits of space that um, you know we really have to fight to expand or to hang on to.
1: Yeah, let me play a clip here for you from Sergeant Steve Addison. Now, he is a spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. He's been on an earlier show here talking about these issues, and here he is. Now he's talking here specifically about e scooters, which are. They are legal on the streets of Vancouver, um, bike lanes under a pilot project. Electric unicycles are still not street legal, but here he is talking about e-scooters and I'll get your thoughts.
5: Um, the, yeah, they do tend to lead to um, uh, some conflicts, and we try to mitigate those conflicts um, as as they arise. Uh, educating them, um, because a lot of people don't know what the rules are, educating them about the rules really goes a long way. Certainly, if there's cases where people are being reckless, um, egregious, disrespectful to people, uh, we we can and we will issue fines.
1: Okay, so you heard him say there that he tries to mediate if there are any problems. Gabriel, let me go back to you. Like, did it surprise you to get that $598 ticket? Because it it sounds like you said you were riding on Main Street in Vancouver, right?
5: Yes, it surprised me because I was riding the way I normally do, in a safe manner, as if I were a bike, basically. And Main Street is a shared bike lane that you can see, like the markings on the street. So it was surprising.
1: Yeah, because it it doesn't sound like there was any mediation going on there. Dr. Travers, back to you. Are you surprised this $598 ticket Gabriel got?
4: I am, but I'm aware that uh, between four and six other riders have received tickets for the same offense of operating a motor vehicle without insurance, you know, when Ah. it's impossible to get insurance. I don't think that this is a a VPD-wide priority to target uh, electric micro mobility riders in general, or electric unicycle uh, riders in particular, I think that it's on the agenda of one or two police officers, and it just you know it's it speaks to some of the difficulties that uh, alternative means of transportation have when trying to take hold of you know the market the space i know that when bicycles first came out there was a moral panic around bicycles and how it expanded <laughs> women's freedom in ways that you know some people were uncomfortable <laughs> with so and the same thing when automobiles came out there was a citizens movement in the 1920s in the us to force automakers to put speed delimiters on the cars themselves yeah. um you know and the auto industry fought back so I, I really think that as we move forward as a city, we're challenged by climate change. We're also trying to get people on any kind of active transport that we possibly can. You know, we want to support transit. Electric micromobilities are first and last mile solutions that can be taken on uh, public transit. So there are so many benefits to electric micro mobilities. They also uh, provide the opportunity for riders who are no longer capable of riding a conventional bike or who even find public transit difficult. Uh, They provide uh, a mobility that's more effective and freeing. So there are incredible, like there are many ways that, uh, you know, Mm. these new modes of transportation should be highlighted.
1: Do you... Uh, you do you Go therefore ahead. do you therefore think that electric unicycles should be street legal in Vancouver? Like right now we have this pilot project for electric scooters, but these electric unicycles not included. Do you think they should be included in that pilot project so you can legally ride them on, let's say, bike lanes?
4: Yes, I do think that okay. they should be included in the pilot project. And I also think that our policy makers and planners are, you know, I've I've met with a number of Vancouver City planners, North Shore city planners. Um they're excited, or Kelowna City planners, they're excited about the potential of um electric micromobilities. And interestingly enough, one of the uh the city planners I interviewed said that he received, you know, a number of complaints when they put out the new e-scooter sharing systems from, you know, citizens who were concerned about safety, and this happened the same weekend that six people died in a in a crash on the highway that was barely mentioned at all. So, you know, hmm. the the way in which uh, a microscope is focused on electric micro-mobilities, you know, if somebody has a slight mishap, it's like, "Oh no, these things are dangerous." Whereas you know, the, the, I think it's around 2000 people a year in Canada are, are killed in motor vehicle accidents. So I, I think that uh, what we're familiar with doesn't seem, or the dangers of what we're familiar with tend to get overlooked. Whereas right. you have a new mode that is less dangerous because it's smaller and people are moving at, you know, slower speed, you know, there's anxiety just because it's
1: new. Okay. Very interesting. I want to thank both of you for being here. I really appreciate your time. Gabriel Kwok from Emily Carr University. Dr. Travers, Simon Fraser University. They are both avid unicycle, electric unicycle riders. Thanks a lot to both of them. Let's talk about this unaffordable housing market right now. I really feel for young people who are dreaming of getting into a home. The prices are so unaffordable, and we'll talk about that. Also, your rights as a renter. So if you are a tenant, if you are a renter in British Columbia... What are your rights? Do you know your rights and some of the changing roles? Let's discuss this all now with my guest, Zora Farron. Zora is a grad student at SFU, and I highly recommend Zora's TikTok, where her she is an advocate for housing affordability and renters' rights. And I'm very pleased to welcome Zora to the show. Zora, thanks a lot for coming on today.
6: Thanks for having me, Mike. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, you bet. Thanks for doing. And congrats on your, your TikTok success. I, uh, following you on there and you, re- you don't pull any punches on there when it comes to renters <laughs> rights. I I love it. Let's talk a little bit about some of the, the information you put out there. One of the things that you've been highlighting for people, if you are a renter, the damage deposit on your lease, right? Your landlord has to pay you interest on that now. Is that how that, how does that work?
6: Yeah, correct. So this is a law that's been in place for a really long time, but it's tied to prime um, and it's prime minus four and a half percent, which means if prime is under four and a half percent, it's been equating zero for a long time. And now that prime is up above that, um, the expectation in the law requires that the interest that uh, that security deposit would be gaining is then transferred back to the tenants when they leave.
1: Okay. So for people who they should know about that, I guess it's not a whole lot of money though, right?
6: No, it's not. Yeah. It's just one. So right now it's it's basically done year by year. This year, starting January 1st, it's 1.95% over the year. Um, so if your landlord is holding, let's say, a $1,000 security and pet deposit, then you would get $19.50 when you left at the end of the year. Um, this does mean that if Prime stays high and you're in that unit for multiple years, you know, each year it'll be reassessed. And, and you know, at the end of it, you might get something uh, if you've been there multiple years that would be, you know, a little bit, at least a nice little cash in your pocket when you go
1: Yeah, it's something for renters to be aware of and how the rules are evolving on this. So I encourage people to check that out if you are a tenant, for sure. Zora, let's talk a little bit about affordability in this housing market right now. And you've done some great TikToks on this, like for what people need now in terms of income to be able to afford to break into this market. We've talked a lot about this on the show in the past. And I often hear from... Existing homeowners who say, you know, young people should stop their whining because look, we worked hard to get into a home. You should work hard to save up, cut out, cut out the, cut out the frills in your life and just buckle down and save up for that mortgage. But, you know, we all know that it, let's consider what kind of income you need to get into a home in this market. So let me play a clip here for you. So this is Penelope Graham on the show last week, ratehub.ca how much income you need to afford an average-priced home in Vancouver. Have a listen.
2: A prospective buyer uh, today actually needs to earn uh, just over $23,000 more this year compared to last year. Uh, So that income is now just over uh, $212,000. Last year is just over about uh, $189,000 in order to um, qualify for a mortgage to afford the average-priced home.
1: Zora, I know you get into this on your TikTok with people too, right? Like some people say, well, what are young people whining about? Just save up, buckle down and save up to get into this housing market. What do you think?
6: <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, if you know anything about the average incomes in British Columbia or the median incomes, uh, that they're just so far away from any sort of relationship to the housing crisis, especially in Kind of, you know, urban environments like Victoria or Vancouver, uh, Greater Vancouver, it's it's completely out of line, um, and it might take, according to you know recent stats, it might take if you're saving up 10% of your income, it might take you, you know, 300 months to save up for a down payment, and that's you know, that's assuming that prices don't change, but we know that in 300 months, prices are going to change. And if anything, you know, the history of of the housing market's any indication that's only (laughs) going to go up. Um, So, you know, as a single person, almost impossible to get that kind of income, even as a household, extremely challenging to get that kind of income. Um, And I know a lot of people my age and younger have given up the idea of like a home, a detached home is just not even an option and may not be an option in our lives. And further, you know, it's becoming further and further out of reach to even own a one-bedroom condo, which is where we've yeah. kind of readjusted our sights to, but that's that's quickly slipping
1: away as well. Yeah, no, condos are really out of sight for people, people, too. And the other thing is that, and we got into this on the show last week, housing prices have softened a little bit in Vancouver, so the prices have gone down a little bit, but guess what? You still need more income and be able to afford that home because the mortgage rates have gone up. So interest rates have gone up. So the cost of borrowing has gone up and it offsets any kind of little softening in the price. So, I mean, you know, it's still unaffordable for so many people, but let me play a clip here for you to get your thoughts. Now, this is something I'm sure you have heard and we, I hear it from listeners here too. You know, young people, stop your whining, buckle down. Okay, cut out the frills in your life, and then maybe you can afford a home. Have a listen to this. Tim Gurner here, CEO Gurner Group. He makes the point here, then I'll get your thoughts. And a lot of people won't own a house in their lifetime. That is just the reality of where we're going. So you think that young people have now got
0: the prospect of never owning a home? Absolutely, when you're spending $40 a day on
5: smashed avocado and coffees and not working. Of course.
1: (laughs) Okay, so stop buying your smashed avocado on toast, right? And stop buying your five dollar lattes. Zora, what do you think of that? Uh,
6: again, this assumes income that we just don't have. You know, if we were, if we had that kind of income to spend, uh, we would not be making a, a median wage of fifty thousand dollars in Vancouver or other places in British Columbia. Um, you know, and ironically, forty dollars on you know smashed coffee and avocado is becoming the reality at a grocery store. Uh, we know that. <laughs> grocery prices are inflating and, you know, $38 chicken. So I'm not really sure what we're supposed to eat uh, if we can't spend $40 on our groceries either, which is becoming a reality for Canadians as well.
1: Do you have any thoughts on what could make this better? I mean, this is a, you know, we've got governments here who have brought in measures to try and bring in some measure of affordability in this, in this market. Do you have any thoughts on what, what should be done or what could be done to make housing more affordable?
6: I mean, ideally, everyone would have the choice to own if they could. Ideally, that would be within reach of all Canadians. I think the reality is, is that we're going to become more like other countries, like in Europe, that, you know, renting for your whole life is a cultural norm. And one of the reasons that it is a norm is because it is well regulated and it is affordable, because oftentimes it is tied to incomes. Um, So I think that that's totally fine if people are going to be renting their whole lives, but it needs to be in a way that allows renters to have a good standard of living. And right now, The rental prices do not reflect that. It's very normal to see people spending 50 to 60% of their income on just their bare necessities of housing, right? Um, Right. So I think, you know, in British Columbia, we do have some good rental laws in place that are strong. We need more protection for renters, and we need it uh, to be tied to the amount of income that someone actually makes and not, you know, some nebulous market price that is defined by all these other factors.
1: Yeah. Speaking of Zora Fair, and Zora is a grad student at SFU, advocate for renters home affordability you should definitely check out zora's tiktok for sure so speaking of renters rights and let's talk a little bit about how your landlord can evict you a lot of people may have seen this the heartbreaking story that broke last week of the uh, the dying woman on vancouver island who was evicted by a landlord the landlord even cut off the electricity to her flat and she couldn't even power up her oxygen tank anymore. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen a sadder story here when it comes to an, an eviction, an unfair eviction. So, Zora, so, I mean, that's kind of an extreme case. But mm-hmm. do you do you think that landlords have got too much power to be able to evict people?
6: Uh, speaking personally, I, I have gone through not anything this extreme, but I and many of my peers have gone through similar uh, unfair eviction processes. Um, I do think that there is basically a fear of standing up for your rights. This is something the story that you're referencing to was done completely illegally. But there is fear when the rental market is so tight, when there's such a low vacancy rate. um, It can be very intimidating to stand up to your rights because you don't really have a lot of options. So you don't want to upset anyone or do anything that might risk, you know, your reference to your next landlord or, you know, put you out um, or fight against it. You know, so there are. I think that there are many ways that a landlord can evict and though you may be able to go back afterwards and raise a dispute with the RTB, um, you are already out of the home at that point. So even if they are found to be in the wrong, it's not like you get your housing back, which I think is a, is a big problem.
1: Yeah, RTB, Residential Tenancy Branch. So there are avenues of appeal, right? So you can file an appeal. What is, what is that process like for people? Can that drag on for a long time?
6: Yeah, it can. I mean, the the residential tenancy branch is completely swamped with requests, Um, a lot of them from tenants, some of them from landlords to get, you know, arbitration and get decisions on things. Uh, So it can drag on it. It is also a very formalized process. If you want to evict someone, there are protections. And in most cases, not all, landlords do need to go to the RTB first to get an order. You can't just approach a tenant and say that you're evicted. Um, You need to give evidence to the RTB why you think that you should be able to evict them. And you can get expedited uh, filings to get a hearing faster. And then once you have the order, then you can go to your tenant and serve that order to them um, if you feel like you've been unfairly evicted, you also have two years from the end of your tenancy to do that dispute from the tenant side. So if you feel like something was wrong or if you go back later and learn that your rights were violated, you still have time up to two years uh, to bring that to the RTB and hopefully um, either get compensation or at least, you know, let the landlord know what their legal rights are in a formal setting.
1: Okay, it's good for people to know what their rights are. I think you do a really good job on TikTok doing that, Zora. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. No problem. Here we go now with income-tested traffic fines. Now, here is the deal with this. New Westminster City Council has just backed this idea. Let's talk about excessive speeding in British Columbia. So that's the offence, 40 kilometres over the limit. That is excessive speed. Now, the fine for that offence three hundred and sixty eight dollars that is the fine for excessive speed if you are a working person a middle-income or low-income that's that's a pretty good dent in your wallet i guess three hundred and sixty eight bucks what if you're a rich person what if you are a multi-millionaire you're driving a lamborghini you get a three hundred and sixty eight dollars speeding offense who cares what kind of difference will it make to that guy Now, so here's the proposal now. You make it income-tested. The higher your income, the higher the fine. Really drive that penalty home. Got Paul Minhas standing by to discuss this. I've listened to this here now. Other countries do this, including in Finland. Now, check out what happened to an NHL hockey player from Finland who got racked up for speeding back in his home country of Finland. Listen to this.
2: Names on the Buffalo Sabres had to pay a pretty hefty fine for speeding in his home country. A news outlet in Finland reports defenseman Rasmus Ristolainen was caught driving 50 miles per hour in a 25 mile per hour zone. And because Finland hands out fines based on income, that got him a $135,000 fine.
1: <laughs> 135 grand. That was the speeding ticket for this guy in Finland. Why? Because he has an NHL contract. He signed a contract for like $24 million or something. That's why he has to pay that much. Should we do the same thing in British Columbia? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Paul Minhas, city councillor in New Westminster. Very pleased to welcome him. Councillor, thanks a lot for coming on today.
3: Thank you, Mike, for having me on your show.
1: Yeah, you bet. Now, this is a really interesting issue. It came up for a vote at New West City Council recently. I spoke to the mayor about it last week. Patrick Johnson, he likes this idea. Let me play a clip here of the mayor for you. He likes this idea of income-tested traffic fines. Here's what he had to tell me. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts.
3: One of the knockoff effects of the COVID pandemic is actually the pedestrian deaths and injuries are going up in urban areas after decades of roads becoming safer. Um, So they're now becoming more dangerous. And it's also interesting that people of lower income and marginalized people are disproportionately the victims of these types of incidents.
1: Okay, so he says accidents are going up and we need to punish these drivers to slow them down, I guess. What do you think?
3: I don't think it's practical at all. Uh, uh, When it did get brought up in the council, uh, myself, as well as uh, Council Fontaine, Uh, We were the only ones that voted against this motion. Um, And even uh, when this was brought up in uh, Saanich, for example, by the mayor, uh, it did not even get uh, one single vote. Uh, It didn't even get brought up for discussion. Um, I just don't think it's practical at all. Uh, Traffic fine equity uh, won't deter speeding in New Westminster or anywhere in B.C. Um, My belief is that punishment uh, only deters, um, un, I mean, we all want undesired behavior. Um, and if people behave, uh, they'll be caught and the punishment will be applied uh, based on the laws that are in, in, in practice right now.
1: Why do you think it would be not practical? Do you, mean, do you think it would be kind of, a, you'd have to set up some sort of bureaucracy here now to start checking people's incomes when they get a ticket?
3: Yeah to right. Uh, very good question there. Uh, You know, it's going to create so many levels of uh, bureaucracy that uh, uh, what is happening on the ground level on the street is very different. And how is it going to be applied? Uh, That's one of the biggest things. Uh, It just it just doesn't make sense. Uh, It becomes a two tier ticketing. And the question is, do we apply to other things as well? Is it just going to be speeding? What's next?
1: Yeah, no, I've had people say that to me the last few days, too. Like, okay, what about other crimes? If you're high income, does that mean you get a longer, a longer jail term? But, you know, let's talk about other jurisdictions where apparently the mayor thinks it's working well in other places. Let me play another clip here for you. New Westminster Mayor Patrick Johnston on last week's show. Let's have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts.
3: So hmm. this is all about the equity for users of public space. Roads are public spaces, and jurisdictions around the world have introduced this This model for traffic fines, Finland, Sweden, UK, Switzerland, countries in Latin America, and the approach is really popular in those jurisdictions.
1: Okay, so he says it's working in other countries. We heard about the NHL hockey player in Finland who got hit with a $135,000 speeding ticket. Don't you think that if you hit someone with that level of a fine, they would certainly get the message and slow down?
3: You know, uh, again, a very good question. The reality is actually... uh, we are a totally different city, different country. Um, just because it works over there, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work here in British Columbia or in, in the West. Uh, it has to be more uh, evidence provided uh, based on our system in North America or in Canada. Um, when we're talking about other countries, just because it works over there, it doesn't necessarily mean that the system is going to work over here. And the mayor himself has talked about evidence-based. But here he's totally talking about no evidence whatsoever, except that it's happening in other countries, and it'll be okay over here. It's not necessarily that's the way it works. Um, It's going to create a lot of uh, challenges for the the police officers, uh, as well as uh, the whole system in itself. Uh, You know, there'll be court challenges. Uh, There's a lot of things that will come into play. I mean, when are we going to uh, or how far do we take it? Uh, yeah. the parking fines, the jaywalking, uh, you know, and then even the swimming pools, what's next?
1: <laughs> okay. Do you think it has the potential to be a cash grab? Because I've heard this, this point as well, that maybe the police, if they realize that if they ticket someone who's a super high income earner, the, the penalty is going to be huge. There's going to be a lot more traffic fine revenue. So you talked earlier about a potential for a two tier system here. Do you think that maybe police officers would say, whoa, okay, this guy is driving some high end vehicle or sports car. I'm going to hit that guy and, and fine him because the fine is going to be higher. And I'll let the, the guy in the, in the, in the Bondo buggy beater, old, old rusty old car, let that guy go. Do you think that's possible?
3: Uh, another very good question. Again, what are we really trying to achieve here? Is the big qu- bigger question here, Mike? Um, at the end of the day, uh, I mean, when these things uh, go to court, hypothetically, um, the most judges won't go for this. It'll be thrown out of court. Um, at the end of the day, we are trying to change the behavior of the people. Is this really going to work? Is this practical? And and that's one of the biggest questions that I have, and a lot of people that are talking about it right now.
1: Okay, so you voted against it. You are one of two councilors who voted against this idea. So it it did pass though with the support of the mayor and other councilors. So it now gets kicked upstairs to a, a local uh, authority to take a look at a regional authority. Uh, would you would you encourage your colleagues and other and other jurisdictions say, look, don't get on board, like don't do this. It's it's not going to work. It's going to backfire. What would be your message on it?
3: I think uh, the regional uh, leaders that are going to be looking into this, they're fully aware of it. I mean, if you look at it when it first uh, got brought up in Sanage, uh, not one other council uh, person even uh, uh, decided to debate or talk about it. It got thrown out, right? And I think. Um, most of the regional uh, leaders uh, they will see this they'll look much deeper into it Um, i don't think uh, it's it's going to work personally that's my opinion but at the same token let's see what happens
1: okay well we're following it closely councillor thank you for your time today i appreciate it
3: thank you mike for having me on
1: OK, let's talk about the continuing reports of Chinese state interference in Canadian elections. Now, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, his take on this is that he says we know the Chinese government had been trying to influence Canadian elections. He says it didn't work, that Canadians have can have confidence in the outcome of the last two elections, that this campaign of Chinese state interference was futile, it did not work. I, I don't know how he knows that. I've talked to MPs, former MPs, who feel there was meddling in the turn the tide of some of these elections. Trudeau now resisting calls for a public inquiry. We've talked a lot about this on the show. Reports from the Globe and Mail, Globe and, Global News. There's been multiple reports citing top secret CSIS documents about Chinese state meddling in Canadian elections. Should there be a public inquiry? Let's check in with Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West. Mayor West, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Hey, you bet. So I know this is an area that of, of great interest to you, and I know you think that there's, there should be reforms not only in, in federal election meddling but elsewhere. But what are your thoughts on the, these calls for a public inquiry? Do you think that's a good idea?
0: Well, I think we have no choice but to do it, given what we've learned over the last couple of weeks about the level of Chinese Communist Party interference into our elections. Uh, And I actually think that uh, eventually uh, the prime minister is going to be forced to call that public inquiry because this issue is not going to go away and it will haunt this government if they don't make that move. I mean, the reality of what we're hearing is something that many of us have been warning about for some time. That is that the government of China is embarking on a very strategic, methodical, coordinated and planned campaign to grow their influence in a whole number of areas within our country to be able to influence Canadian decision-making. And what we've heard about funneling money to candidates for electoral office about stacking nomination meetings to get people elected. Uh, This is serious stuff. And and this really gets to the heart of of our democracy, of our government and the fact that our elected representatives should be working for the citizens of Canada, period. Stop. Uh, And that's what this is about. And so I do think we need that full public inquiry. It needs to be independent Uh, It needs to have some real kick-ass person in charge of it who's going to compel people to testify. And there could be and there should be, if there is wrongdoing, criminal charges that flow out of that as well.
1: Yeah, and the Prime Minister's comments on this, I've listened closely to everything he said on it, and I find it very frustrating because his, his answers to some of these simple questions, basic questions on this, he gives ambiguous answers, there's a lot of sort of political spin and double talk, it's difficult to pin him down precisely. Like when he says, for example, oh, Canadians can rest assured that this uh, state interference by, by the Chinese Communist Party in our elections, it didn't work, don't worry, it didn't work. Well, how does he know it didn't work? I mean, how does he know what's in the hearts and minds of people? They go into a voting booth. How, do they, how does he know they haven't been influenced?
0: I, I don't know how he comes to that determination. Uh, based on what? If, if there's information out there, uh, he should share it. What yeah. do we know so far? We know that uh, the uh, Chinese Communist Party was funneling money to candidates for office. 11 uh, candidates for member of parliament in the last federal election. We know that they were involved in nomination races to get MPs elected to uh, their party's candidacy. Uh, I suspect that that is very much the tip of the iceberg because this uh, goes into all facets of Canadian society. And that's something that I've tried to raise some awareness of. Uh, It's not just election interference. We have uh, in in the business world and the corporate world and academia, uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, a number of of organizations and people who basically parrot the talking points of the Chinese Communist Party, um, and this is all very much connected. All part of a deliberate campaign on their uh, on their part.
1: What about the calls for? a foreign agent registry in Canada, some sort of reforms in order to identify this? Like, so if you're doing business with China, you would have to disclose this on a foreign registry that would be public documents, right? So you could have some accountability. Do you think that's a good idea?
0: <laughs> Mike, talk about an absolute no-brainer. I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> this exists in so much of the rest of the world, in the U.K., in Australia, in New Zealand, in the United States. I, I mean, it, it really makes you question whether or not we're a serious country or not, that we, we cannot even have something as basic as that. When we are seeing the vulnerabilities that exist, and to have no action, just to have a, a, a bunch of nonsense be peddled and uh, double speak. Uh, It's incredibly frustrating for those of us who care about the future of this country. And I suspect uh, Canadians are very, very uh, frustrated and, you know, up to their wit's end about it.
1: Speaking to Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West, while I have you here, let me ask you about the property tax increases we're seeing across Metro Vancouver. So we take a look at these double-digit tax hikes, Vancouver, Surrey, elsewhere... And you had a comment that really jumped out at me last week that municipalities should stay in their own lane and not try to expand their jurisdiction beyond what they're responsible for. And you said they should not be the United Nations. You should be a local, responsible civic government. Let me play a clip here for you that I I thought kind of exemplified this. Okay, so Adrian Carr, Green Party, city councillor in Vancouver, her calls for the city of Vancouver to launch a lawsuit against big oil companies. Have a listen to what she says here. I'll get your thoughts.
6: We have to get off fossil fuels. Let's make the oil companies help us by giving us back the money we've already spent and we'll need to spend to repair damage.
1: It just occurred to me that maybe this is along the lines of what you're talking about, when you've got a city councillor saying, we should go after big oil and spend taxpayers' money to sue these oil companies. Is that sort of an example of what you're talking about?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that would be the responsibility of the provincial or federal government. Yeah. And in fact, the provincial government went in, uh, sued some of the pharmaceutical companies and uh, got a settlement uh, with re- uh, in relation to opioids. The, the reality is that a local government we have things we're actually responsible for. The things that people actually send their tax dollars to City Hall for. A clean city, roads, snow removal, parks, playgrounds. You know, a a city that's inviting and clean and is a good place to raise a family. I mean, that has been our focus in Port Coquitlam since I was elected mayor. And I'm very proud of the fact that this year... Port is proposing the lowest uh, tax rate of all the 21 cities in Metro Vancouver at 3.3%. You know, Mike, uh, you you said what I said earlier, and I believe that. Uh, There are people who get elected to city council who think they've been elected to the United Nations General Assembly, and they (laughs) want to solve every complex societal problem that we have. And I'm not saying that those issues should be ignored. Absolutely not. Yeah. But local government, municipal government, is not the level of government at which you're going to be able to take those issues on and make a meaningful difference. Because as local government, we are limited to really one source of revenue, property tax dollars. Yeah. And those property tax dollars are stretched as it already is before taking on all these other issues that are not our responsibility. Yeah. And when you take those on, you relieve the other levels of government of their responsibility to actually do something
1: about it. What would be what would be an example of that? Of a local municipal government and metro sort of going out of their lane here, like maybe the cup fee, the environmental cup fee in Vancouver. Would that be on the list?
0: Sure. I mean, I don't want to beat up on Vancouver, but <laughs> uh, you know, the previous. I think the current city council is trying to undo some of this uh, stuff. But you know, there was the previous uh, cup fee, which I think was just a cash uh, cash grab and. Uh, not uh, ironically not for the city council or for the city but ended up being for uh mcdonald's and starbucks uh, because they got to keep the money and it went directly out of people's pockets um you know that the the suing big oil i mean i had the representatives of that campaign come and ask to meet with me and i met with them as i meet with everyone who wants to meet with me and they couldn't explain how the lawsuit would work It, it was well it's more of to send a message Well, send a message with your own money, not the (laughs) taxpayers' money. I mean, seriously, it's not like we don't have our plates already full with things that we need to be looking after in our communities.
1: I agree with you on that one, Mayor West. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks as always, Mike.